And good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's webcast on how the 2018 midterm elections might affect your business. I'm Nicole Jordan, Grant Thornton's National Managing Partner for Markets, Clients, and Industry. I'll be talking today about the midterm elections with Mary Moore Hamrick, National Managing Principal of Public Policy. On today's webcast, we'll provide you with some insight into which party might control Congress after the November 6th elections and on how some likely or projected outcomes could impact U.S. businesses. Let's kick it off with our first polling question. We're all seeing a variety of predictions in the media and speculation about different outcomes and what they may mean. We'll cover some of that ourselves today, but for our audience, which of your company's 2019 decisions do you think will be most affected by the midterm elections? Please take a moment to answer the question. So we have several options here. Uh, technology development, uh, we see a lot of that within our client base. Uh, capital equipment acquisition, workforce growth or improvement. We know that the talent agenda and the talent strategy is really critical for companies today. Global operations, expansion or contraction, or none of the above. We definitely see that uh, our clients today are watching this election closely. And, um, you know, in addition to the midterms, there are 36 gubernatorial elections and a huge number of local races. It is such an active election season that we elected only to cover the federal side today, or uh, we might be talking here all afternoon. Uh, so um, we'll follow and, and share several um, anecdotes and comments about um, what we're seeing uh, across the companies that we serve, um, share some of the concerns about uh, the impact to industries and some of the uncertainty that we're seeing today. And I think we'll give it a few more seconds. I think we are about ready here to uh, push the results and then we'll be able to, uh, to move on. If you have not had an opportunity to submit your uh, answers, okay, here we go. So it looks like the majority of the respondents are expecting the impact on uh, workforce growth or improvement. Um, so again, which of your company's 2019 decisions do you think will be most affected by the midterm elections, um, workforce growth or improvement at uh, 32%? And uh, the next one, global operations expansion or contraction. I think that's consistent, uh, Mary Moore, with, with uh, what we are seeing across our uh, the companies that we serve today. And uh, Mary Moore, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Nicole. I'll tell you, it's hard for me to believe that we are just eight days before voters go to the polls to cast ballots in 470 congressional races, that's House and Senate, to determine whether Democrats or Republicans will control the majority in uh, both of those chambers. And by the way, the 2020 presidential race officially begins after Election Day next week. Well, let's get right into it. Um, so Republicans control the House and the Senate. What will it take for Democrats to retake the majority in the House or 
for Republicans to keep control? Well, the major focus has from the start of this election cycle and continues to be whether Democrats can win a net total of 23 House seats to flip the chamber. But it's certainly not over until all the votes are counted. But I can tell you right now, projections have Democrats winning somewhere between 20 and 40 seats on either side of that magic 23. But what we do know is that Democrats have led throughout the cycle in fundraising and in enthusiasm, which are two really big determining factors. Absolutely. Well, Mary Moore, as November 6th nears, uh, what does the 2018 electoral map look like? Do at least some of the pivotal races appear already decided? Well, you know, it's very interesting. If you look at this slide, which shows the political report, uh, notes that 72 of the 435 races are the ones that are really competitive, where either a Democrat or a Republican could win. And of those 72, there are really only 30 in that gray band in front of you that are considered pure toss-ups. And the talk here in Washington is that Democrats have already locked up 15 of the races that they have to flip to reach that magic number of 23. I see. Well, pollsters frequently talk about House Republicans having a disadvantage this election cycle, despite being able to run on a strong economy, usually a winner with voters. Can you explain that for us? Well, you know, historically, let's take a look at this slide. You can see that um, if you uh, have control of the House, the Senate, and the White House, um, since World War II, the President's party has lost an average of 25 House seats. And in the Senate, the President has lost 19 out of the uh, last 26 elections since 1913, when you first started uh, accounting control of this. But um, back in, um, um, there's only been about two times where you haven't lost uh, any of that um, uh, chambers in that, and that was with uh, Clinton and uh, George Bush after after 20, uh, 2011. I see. Well, is a sitting president's approval rating a factor? Well, President Trump's approval rating, which has never um, been over that 50% mark, it now stands at 44.3%, according to Real Clear Politics. And that is a little bit higher than before the uh, uh, Kavanaugh confirmation hearings to the Supreme Court. But it's essentially where President Barack Obama was back in 2010. And at that time, the Democratic Party lost 63 seats. Hmm. Well, voter enthusiasm is, is uh, certainly at a record high. Um, but which party has the edge? What about the so-called blue wave that seemed to dominate the election cycle or, or at least during the Democratic midterms and the enthusiasm of Democratic voters? Well, you know, to be sure, enthusiasm for midterms is at the highest level that we've seen in more than two decades. A record 72% of registered voters say that the issue of which party controls Congress is going to be a factor in their vote, according to the Pew Research Center. Democrats have led in enthusiasm, which has been a solid forecaster for race outcomes, uh, and they've been leading much of the election cycle. 
Voter turnout in the 2018 primaries is up 3.5% um, for Democrats. And much of this energy has come from candidates that are running as a rebuke on President Trump and behavior that they consider unpresidential. And another big contributing factor is the slate of self-proclaimed Democratic Socialist nominees who captured the attention of voters with, with such promises as debt-free college, $15 an hour uh, minimum wage, and universal health care, which they would bring about by expanding Medicare. Um, enthusiasm has increased by Republican voters, and a little bit more so since the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings, um, and it's up roughly 1.8% uh, in the primaries compared to 2014. I can tell you that it's just amazing. The total cost of 2018 midterms is projected to exceed $5 billion, which would make this the most expensive congressional election in history, according to OpenSecrets.org. The projected total includes money being raised and spent by parties, super PACs, and candidates. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about the enormous amount of money that both parties have raised and spent well, Democrats will spend nearly $300 million more than Republicans. That's about $2.5 billion compared to Republicans at $2.2 billion, according to Open Secrets. And that's the total amounts raised between the parties. But if you take a look at the Democratic incumbents, which this slide outlines, it shows that 56 Democrats outraised the GOP incumbents that they're running against by 146 million to 102 million in the second quarter of this year. And Nicole, I can tell you that money is crucial to everything that a campaign requires, from paying staff to buying yard signs to all the ads that we're going to see in this final week, which is essential as these candidates make their closing arguments. So whether it's enthusiasm or better online fundraising efforts or some combination thereof, Democrats have just flat-out raised Republicans, and Washington Republicans are acknowledging the disparities. Interesting. Well, history, money, enthusiasm, uh, what other headwinds do House Republicans face in trying to keep the House? You know, Nicole, 51 House Republicans this cycle have either resigned, retired, or are running for another office. So Republican resources are stretched thin by having to recruit new qualified candidates and help them finance their campaigns. The, this current exodus of Republicans surpasses our previous record of 41 House Democrats uh, who did the same in 1992. Wow. So which party do you think will win the House? Well, it ain't over till it's over, as they say, and until all the votes are counted, but most forecasters are keeping early predictions that Democrats will win the majority in the House. Uh, they have about a 56% chance, six and seven, compared with Republicans, who only have a 14% chance of keeping control, according to 538.com. I see. Well, let, let's talk a little bit about uh, Democrats' bid to retake control of the Senate in which the GOP now has a 51-49 majority. What are candidates for either party saying on the campaign trail here? 
Well, there are 35 seats of the 100 in the Senate that are up for re-election, and Democrats are going to need to pick up two additional Republican seats to take back the majority. And there are at least nine races that remain deadlocked. Okay. Well, while Democrats have the advantage in the House, how about the Senate? Well, the Democrats, on the other hand, they're at a disadvantage in the Senate because they have to defend 26 of the 35 seats that are up for re-election. It's been an uphill battle for the Democrats since, since the start, but they've mounted some serious upset efforts in several red states. But I can say that in the final weeks, their chances now appear to be fading as voters in red states are coalescing around the more conservative candidates. If you take a look at these 10 races here, 10 of the 35 races that were projected early in the election cycle to determine which party would have the majority, all of these Democratic incumbents are running in states that President Trump won in 2016. And the Democratic nominee leads by double digits in three of those races, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin. But in North Dakota, Democratic Senator Heidi Heitkamp is now losing by double digits and could be headed for defeat. So that means that Democrats would have to win all of the remaining six, which are deadlocked, to pull up a few upsets in races with GOP-held seats. Mm -hmm. I see. Well, this year is expected to break records for the midterm fundraising and spending. How does this impact the races? Well, I can tell you $5 billion is projected to be spent on this year's midterms, but money cannot always buy a victory. In the Senate races, Democrats have raised over $489 million compared to $532 million for Republicans. But if you look at the polls, Nicole, Democrats now just have a 19% chance of getting the majority after appearing earlier in the cycle to have an opportunity to win control of the chamber. Um, one good example is Representative Beto O'Rourke, who's the Democrat trying to unseat Republican Senator Ted Cruz down in Texas, where um, Congressman O'Rourke has raised $38 million in the past three months, a record amount for a Senate candidate. Yet in that same period, Senator Cruz has pulled away in conservative-leaning Texas and now leads by as many as seven percentage points. Yes. Uh, well, it, tell us about some of these really tight Senate races. Well, if, if we look at two open seats, if you go out to Arizona, we've got Congresswoman Kirsten Sinema, who is the Democrat running for the retiring seat of, of Republican Arizona Senator Jeff Flake. She is deadlocked with the Republican nominee, Congresswoman Martha McSally. And over in Tennessee, there's a race for Senator Corker's seat between former Democratic Governor Phil Bridgeson and, and Republican uh, Congresswoman Marsha Blackburn, and that seat remains a toss-up. So if you look at this daunting electoral map and the unlikelihood of upsets in races for Republican-held seats, that now gives Republicans about an 81% chance, or four in five, of keeping the Senate, 
according to 538's most recent polling. Right. Well, what factors or conditions are voters looking at when they grade the president's successes or failures in his first two years of office? Most mentioned are the 2017 tax cuts and cutting regulations which have contributed to a robust economy, which is highlighted by our record low unemployment. You've got GDP, GDP growth, stock markets, and consumer confidence. They are all up since President Trump took office. But it's appearing that these positive economic numbers are proving to be somewhat irrelevant and are being overshadowed by the president's high disapproval ratings, which shows voters' concerns with President Trump's demeanor, his trustworthiness, and his hardline stances on illegal immigration, according to the polling. Right. Well, if we shift over um, what it takes to win, what are Republican incumbents and candidates running on to keep control of the chamber? Well, you've heard the axiom that the GOP is the party of Trump, and that appears largely to be the case on the campaign trail. Republican candidates are mostly running on tax cuts, fewer regulations, the economy, and the Supreme Court and judicial appointments. Democrats ran unsuccessfully in 2016 on a never-Trump agenda and vowed in the aftermath to better articulate an economic plan for the middle class. But Democrats' overarching message this year is still largely resist Trump and elect Democrats as a check on President Trump. Right. Well, do Democrats have an economic message? Well, they do have one which addresses health care, prescription drug cost, and increasing wages, but it really has never caught fire. Instead, what has most captured voters' attention is the message from candidates incumbents from the more, more liberal wing of the party um, that touts the expansion of Medicare, more affordable college, and that minimum wage increase to $15 an hour. All right. Well, shifting to the the Kavanaugh factor, Judge Kavanaugh's Supreme Court confirmation hearings were emotional and politically charged for many Americans. But which party will likely gain the most at the polls as a result? Well, Senate Republicans have gotten two conservative judges appointed to the Supreme Court since President Trump took office, which fulfills one of his campaign promises and certainly appeals to his Republican base. First, Neil Gorsuch and most recently, Brett Kavanaugh. Now, as you stated, Judge Kavanaugh went through a very divided, extremely partisan confirmation process that appears in the final weeks to have energized the Republican base and narrowed the so-called enthusiasm gap. I see. Well, why don't we shift over to um, uh, cybersecurity? Let's, let's take a bit of a break for another polling question. In this election season, there has been a lot of discussion about the security of national elections, which is clearly a concern for all citizens. 
And at the same time, breaches at private companies such as Google and Facebook are making people uneasy about the security of their personal data. So we know that it has been a tough year on the cybersecurity front. While the Trump administration has shown modest progress in advancing cybersecurity, much remains to be done by the private sector. So we, we'd like to ask you, what are your company's plans regarding investment in data privacy or cybersecurity in 2019? Please take a moment to respond. And we have several options noted here. Um, perhaps it is increasing investment, uh, decreasing investment in this area. Perhaps you have already um, uh, made the investments in the past. No change to your current plans, uh, or if, if cyber is not applicable to your, your business priorities. I think we see a lot of reviews that are taking place here, uh, both by the management teams and the boards reviewing annual budgets for privacy and security, ensuring that the roles and responsibilities have been assigned between the management team and the board is getting regular briefings on cyber issues. So really, depending on the company, they may be doing these briefings as frequently as quarterly. So just take, for example, a retail company's board might want quarterly cybersecurity briefings directly presented by the company's chief information security officer. Um, and we see boards really raising privacy and security issues with um, companies that are expanding into new jurisdictions and growing in that way or making significant changes to their operations or locations. Um, cyber risk should be a part of all of these uh, strategic discussions. So, Mary Moore, I know you're you're hearing a lot uh, there on the Hill as well. Absolutely. And and it looks like we just had our uh, results come in as well. And uh, overwhelmingly, it is to increase investment in uh, cyber and privacy. And Mary Moore, I, I think that's what you and I are seeing in in the roles that we serve in for for the firm. That is so true, Nicole. It's just a cross-cutting issue uh, across many of the industries that we serve. Absolutely. Well, how about if we uh, shift over to the Capitol Hill timeline? Just as, as you look ahead, Mary Moore, what are big dates or um, deadlines that are on the horizon for Congress? Well, Nicole, the House and Senate uh, members, they left Washington earlier this month to campaign at home. So we really don't expect any legislative action until the lame duck session will begin after the elections. Much of the attention will be focused when they return on who the members will vote for as their leaders. And uh, my sources tell me that Republicans plan to vote when they return the week after the election, but uh, that I am also hearing that the Democratic vote for their House leader will occur no earlier than December 5th. Now, another very important date will be December 7th, which is the date when the funding for the federal government runs out. All very critical. All right, that's a great overview on the timeline. 
how about if, if we shift over to um, the battle for House leadership? So let's go through some scenarios about who will lead the House if Democrats take control or Republicans keep control. Well, I'll tell you, that is Washington's favorite parlor game is will Nancy Pelosi again lead the House Democratic Conference and who would replace her if that wasn't the case? You know, it's it's a very intriguing storyline with lots of good and deserving candidates mentioned to replace her. But everyone in Washington, including top Republicans, have told us that she will keep her post. And how could um, Nancy Pelosi lose if she delivers a majority for her party in November? And she's raised over $80 million for Democrats running this cycle, so it's just it is very hard to envision uh, that she wouldn't again retain that uh, that spot if if Democrats take back over the House. Right. Well, who will replace Paul Ryan as the chamber's top Republican? Well, that's a really good question. The top candidates appear to be California Congressman Kevin McCarthy, who is now the number two House Republican. And uh, there's also been rumors of Louisiana Congressman Steve Scalise, who is currently the majority whip. And uh, President Trump certainly likes Kevin McCarthy. You'll hear him call him my Kevin, and he appears to think he's the best guy to carry out the president's agenda. But you also have Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan, who's a member of the House Freedom Caucus. But most do not believe that um, anyone from the ultra-conservative group would likely have enough votes. You you also have mentioned North Carolina Congressman Patrick McHenry, who's currently the Republican House uh, Chief Deputy Whip. And then there's always House and Ways, uh, Ways and Means Committee Chairman Kevin Brady, who uh, pushed through that tax bill last year, which are all considered possibilities. All right. Well, if we look at what remains to be done, uh, so Congress left behind some unfinished legislative business so members could hit the campaign trail. What's still on the table when they return? Well, you know, Nicole, beyond the, the first and foremost are the negotiations to fund the government past December, which always raises the possibility of a shutdown. There are other things that Congress must do, like pass a farm bill, which is currently tied up over a partisan battle about the requirements to receive food stamps. Then there's the pending National Flood Insurance Program, as well as Republicans' efforts to extend the individual tax cuts uh, past their 2025 expiration date. You know, Nicole, we've, let's talk a little bit about trade and tariffs and how businesses are impacted as someone who speaks to our clients on a daily basis, what are our clients telling you about these matters? Are the tariffs on Chinese imports hurting U.S. manufacturers that rely on China steel and aluminum? Well, as you know, Mary Moore, the financial markets don't like uh, the uncertainty, and, and neither does business. The so-called tariff war has impacted parts of the domestic economy, including manufacturing. It hasn't had a large overall impact, but businesses want some certainty so they can hire and grow and invest. Is there anything Congress can do to scale back President Trump's aggressive use of, of tariffs? 
you know, that is the question of the day. Um, I can tell you that the traditional view of free trade in Washington changed radically during the 2016 elections when both Trump and Democratic presidential nominee Hillary Clinton each followed Bernie Sanders' lead and declared that they would pull out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The president declared himself a deal-maker, and one of his key campaign promises was to renegotiate all the bad trade deals. So, true to his word, on the third day of his presidency, Trump signed an executive order withdrawing from the TPP, which was intended to lower tariffs among participating countries and counter the Chinese influence in that region. Then, as you know, he threatened to pull out of NAFTA, or the North American Free Trade Agreement. And with that sword of Damocles uh, hanging over the heads of both Mexico and Canada, the U.S. began renegotiations with those countries in January of 2017. And then days later, President Trump approved tariffs of $8.5 billion on imported solar panels, most of which come from China, and $1.8 billion on washing machines. So that was followed up by uh, when the president announced tariffs on all trading partners, including the EU, of 25% on steel and 10% on aluminum. So it really wasn't surprising when Mexico, China, and all these other countries responded with retaliatory tariffs on very politically sensitive products, including Kentucky bourbon. Wisconsin cheese, parts for Harley-Davidson motorcycles, and Midwestern soybeans. I can tell you, Nicole, that President Trump has essentially been imposing the tariffs under the umbrella of national security concerns. And the problem with that is it effectively sidesteps any congressional oversight. Now, that doesn't mean that Congress hasn't expressed a desire for more oversight because back in July, you may, you'll remember that the Senate voted 88 to 11 in favor of a non-binding resolution for more control over presidential imposed tariffs. But we really don't expect Republican members to put a hard check on President Trump. But I can tell you that if the Democrats gain control of either chamber, they will certainly try. And um, recently, President Trump is trying to rework the Obama-area transportation Pacific Partnership, or TPP, to his liking through bilateral trade deals. He seems to like these bilateral trade deals much better than a multilateral deal. And um, we know he pulled out of that agreement because he thought those terms were unfavorable. But we did um, um, have some good news in that President Trump struck a deal with Mexico and then Canada to replace the 23-year-old NAFTA deal and um, um, that new trade agreement between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada is expected to be signed by November 30th, which is important because that's the last day the current Mexican president can sign that deal before leaving office. So when will Congress vote on this new deal? Well, um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has made it clear that this new deal, or the USMCA, is not going to be voted on by the end of this year, which means that it's going to be approved in the new Congress next year. 
And predictions are that it's going to take at least nine months to get this measure through a very partisan 116th Congress. But people, we're optimistic here that it'll ultimately be ratified. But the real wild card that we're talking about in Washington is whether Trump will choose to withdraw from NAFTA before the new agreement is approved by all three of the country's legislative bodies. Mm-hmm. And it, many of our businesses are concerned about China sourcing their products from or selling their products to China. What is the situation with that country? Well, China has imposed $110 billion in tariffs on U.S. exports in response to the Trump administration's tariffs. So they remain President Trump's biggest challenge. And though currently negotiations with China appear to be at a stalemate, President Trump could be forced to act if the stock markets continue to decline as we move closer to the 2020 elections. You know, Nicole, tell me what you're hearing from businesses. Well, businesses uh, that, that we're engaged with really want the trade war settled Does Trump appear to have a grand or a a master plan toward that end? Well, I can tell you how or when President Trump will deal with the tariff war with other countries, including China, is really unclear because he has suggested that he is not going to hold any such meetings during the upcoming G Summit, which is in late uh, November in Buenos Aires. Many had hoped that he would. And the U.S. is effectively refusing to resume trade negotiations with China until Beijing comes up with a concrete proposal to address Washington's complaints about these forced technology transfers and other economic issues. That's what we're hearing from um, uh, officials here in Washington. So, unfortunately, Nicole, negotiations have been on hold since mid-September when the Chinese canceled a trip to Washington after the U.S. announced levies on $200 billion in Chinese imports. I can tell you that by alienating the EU, Mexico, and China early in the process, President Trump likely weakened the united front he could have had in confronting America's greater economic threat which, of course, is China. Absolutely. Well, I remember when uh, in Washington this this summer, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce was talking about putting a 1,000 points of pressure on Trump to de-escalate the trade wars. You know, know, Carl, you're absolutely correct. Uh, When we were at the Chamber, um, certainly the Chamber, the Business Roundtable, and the National Association of Manufacturers have all been a united voice for free trade. And I can tell you that manufacturers in particular are bringing political pressure on moderate Republicans such as Illinois' Congressman Peter Roskam and other vulnerable Republicans this year, hoping that they might be able to get um, President Trump to end the trade war. But while manufacturers are are, uh, putting the pressure on Nicole, it's really fascinating to see that Midwestern soybean farmers are strongly supportive of the president. They believe that nothing has worked so far, so it's time to try something different. And I'm hearing from Midwestern congressmen that Trump is feeling no political pressure to back down. 
In fact, he's been uh, likely emboldened by brokering this recent NAFTA replacement deal. So um, pressure from Congress and trade associations have had limited to no impact on the president. So I can tell you that I think the uh, only thing that might uh, change things up is if there's this declining stock market um, that the president could face as he heads into the 2020 elections. That would be about it that would move him off um, on his negotiation with China and other countries. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And, well, this is a big issue, and um, we do want to take a polling question here, and we want to know what you think. While the midterm elections are unlikely to affect recent trade tariffs, which are the result of Trump administration's executive orders, does your company have a specific 2019 strategy for managing the impact to your business in the event of a trade war? Please take a moment to share your feedback. Um, Several options here on uh, having a comprehensive strategy in place or uh, all the way back to um, having uh, little concerns uh, to, to your business. So we'll see. Uh, give that a few seconds uh, to populate here. Um, we certainly see this as a huge issue for uh, certain clients, some more than others. Um, uncertainty around trade, though, um, really isn't just an issue for multinational corporations. It's it's also a threat to uh, the domestics, and um, we we do see concerns about the impact uh, to the wider economy and the potential for rising costs to create a drag on consumer spending just as the confidence is going up. So we we hear a lot of feedback, Mary Moore, just back and forth uh, within the companies that we serve across multiple industries, both globally and here at home. That makes sense. And I think we have got the uh, polling results here. It'll be interesting to see uh, how many of the companies are potentially not affected by um, the trade and, and tariff policies um, versus those that uh, really need to have a comprehensive strategy in place. All right. Uh, so the results are. Um, it looks like the majority here know we don't have a specific strategy in place and uh, perhaps um, or not applicable. The next uh, level down, Mary Moore, at 23%. Um, so the majority not being um, uh, affected by the administration's trade and, and tariff policies. You, you know, that makes that makes a lot of sense because um, uh, President Trump is betting that a, a small percentage of our businesses will be impacted by this. But the reality is for those that are impacted, this is a major concern. And um, I've spent mm-hmm. time around the country speaking to some of our clients about that. So those who are impacted are very, very concerned. Yes. Well, if we shift over to the House Republicans' tax agenda, well, passing the 2017 tax law was really a major victory for Republicans. Can we expect them to build off of that? You know, Nicole, um, with the 2017 law, that was the first comprehensive reform to our federal tax code in about three decades, and Republicans are using that as a rallying cry for the elections. 
Americans got more money in their paychecks um, uh, as individual rates were lowered, and the corporate rate was lowered to 21%. Pass-through businesses got a fairer tax law through the deduction of up to 20%, which is significant because 95% of all U.S. businesses are pass-throughs. And the IRS this summer issued long-awaited proposed regulations for the deduction found in Section 199A of the Code. So I can tell you affirmatively that if Republicans hold the House, they're certainly planning to build on those successes, which would include making permanent the individual and pass-through tax cuts, which currently expire in 2020 under the 2017 law. Well, what would a new GOP tax plan look like? House Republicans have already unveiled a three-part package, which would first and foremost make those individual cuts permanent. They would improve retirement savings. And thirdly, they would help startup companies by allowing them to write off some more costs. The Republicans in the House attempted this summer to address those three bills separately with the last two uh, having a better chance of package, of, of passage uh, in, in the House. But what happened was Mitch McConnell and the Republican Senate made it really clear that they are not going to take up another tax bill because they were really laser-focused laser on getting judges confirmed to the federal bench. Yes. Well, and if we shift over to House Democrats' tax agenda, um, what do you see as the Democrats' tax agenda? Well, if the Democrats take back the House, they have already signaled uh, plans to undo parts of the 2017 tax law, uh, which would include increasing the corporate rate, increasing the tax on the country's highest wage earners, and re reinstating the state and local tax deductions, which really hit hard in many blue states. Uh, you'll remember that no um, Democrat voted for the 2017 um, tax bill, so they do not feel obligated uh, to uphold that bill at all. And then we've had California Senate uh, Democratic Senator Kamala Harris has recently proposed a $1,600 tax break for families whose total annual income is less than $100,000. So I think that's what we can expect if the Democrats take back the House. I see. Well, let's go to the polls on this one as well. Um, tax reform was perhaps the most significant achievement of the Trump administration to date. Given the legislation's transformative potential to spur business investment, what are your company's plans in 2019? Would it be to um, increase investment, uh, to decrease investment, or to continue as is? We'll get a poll here and uh, see what everybody is, is thinking or, or planning as it relates to um, additional business investment. So it looks like we are close here. I know this has been a big one that our tax people have been talking uh, with our clients about. Be very curious as to what people have to say.
All right. I'm sorry we had a little bit of a uh, disconnect there. Okay, I think we are um, ready to show the results. Okay, there we go. So it looks like it's it's uh, fairly well split there, Mary Moore. Um, increasing investment, about 37% of the respondents, and then no change in uh, the investment at around uh, 42%. Um, so about half and half there. Interesting. Well, how about if we turn to healthcare, which uh, of course continues to be a big concern for voters? It certainly is, and Congress's efforts to improve the U.S. healthcare system has, for many years, truly been a stalemate between Democrats trying to preserve the Obama-era health care law, known as Obamacare, on the one hand, and Republicans trying to repeal it on the other hand. If Republicans hold the House and the Senate, they could once again attempt an Obamacare repeal and replace bill. However, a couple of interesting changes have occurred in recent months. Uh, President Trump and Republicans on the campaign trail said they want to protect Americans with pre-existing conditions, which can limit their insurance coverage. So on the one hand, you've got a conversation with the Republicans talking up some of the uh, components of the uh, Affordable Care Act. And on the other hand, half of all Democrats running for a House seat are backing a Medicare for All proposal, which is further proof that what was started as Bernie Sanders' idea is being embraced by the larger Democratic Party. Mm-hmm. And uh, but but isn't cost you know who will pay for it a concern? Well, indeed, Nicole. Because if you'll recall that the Medicare for All effort, or a single payer uh, plan as it's known, it failed in California last year, in large part because the cost was projected to be at four hundred billion dollars, and that includes two hundred billion dollars in new spending which would have had to been covered by increases in tax taxes. So um, while we can still expect a Democratic House to pass a Medicare for All bill to appeal to its base, um, I think you'll see that just so that they can send a message going into 2020 as to what they're for in the healthcare space. But we don't expect a bill to pass a, a Senate which will be narrowly controlled. So um, also, if you look at a Democratic House, they would likely try to reinstate cost-sharing reductions or CSR payments that would go to insurance companies to stabilize Obamacare. And these are subsidies that are paid to those insurance companies to reduce uh, co-payments and deductibles for about 7 million Americans who are enrolled, enrolled in the health care program. And those were discontinued by President Trump in October of 2017. And then finally, Democrats want to reduce prescription drug prices by mandating that research and development costs be fairly allocated across all um, countries. Okay. Well, and if we transition from health care to infrastructure... Remember how President Trump touted an infrastructure program on the 2016 campaign trail, 
and it seemed to have bipartisan support. What happened? You know, that's a really good question, and there were several factors that contributed to infrastructure's back burner status. Republican efforts at the start of the Trump administration to repeal and replace Obamacare really hurt a lot of potential bipartisanship. And then there was no money left because the tax cuts are expected to add to the federal deficit, which is currently estimated to be over $800 billion for fiscal 218. So it appears that Republicans have no appetite for additional federal spending. That said, many roads, bridges, and ports are outdated and need improvement. Repair um, efforts would result in jobs, at least temporarily. And But I can tell you that every new Congress begins with new promises for better efforts towards bipartisanship. And I heard as recently as last week that President Trump is personally reaching out to Senate Democrats to see if they will help him with an infrastructure bill. And they um, just might want uh, to do that and have more federal dollars, though, uh, for them would have to go directly to transit projects in addition to these Republican proposed public-private partnerships. The hard part is going to be how do you agree to pay for these new infrastructure projects? And as we've discussed, Democrats might increase the corporate tax rate or put um, have a carbon tax. And you've also heard it mentioned that you could increase the federal gas tax or increase, increase or create more road tolls. So I will tell you that at the end of the day, an infrastructure deal is doable if the president can bring along the Republicans and reach a consensus with the Democrats. The three questions remain, number one, how bad does President Trump want an infrastructure bill? Number two, are the Republicans willing to go along with increasing the deficit even further to pay for it? And three, are the Democrats willing to give President Trump a victory going into the 2020 presidential election? So, Nicole, I would say stay tuned. Uh, and we will, absolutely, Mary Moore. Talking about the House Democrats' agenda, I presume Democrats who are confident about taking the House have plans come January. So what is your view? Well, I, I can tell you one thing for sure, is if the Democrats control the House, they are certainly going to use their oversight committees, particularly the House Committee on Oversight and Government Affairs, which is the Chamber's chief investigative panel. And being in control of the committees will also give Democrats the subpoena authority they currently don't have under the House Republican control. So I can tell you, Nicole, we expect there to be nonstop hearings as Democrats use their oversight committees to extend probes on Russia collusion or to investigate the administration's response to Hurricane Maria last year in Puerto Rico, as well as we've certainly heard that there would be a call to subpoena President Trump's tax returns. Yes. Well, and we've discussed the big issues like oversight and Medicare for all, but will we see impeachment proceedings? You know, Nancy Pelosi has successfully beat back calls for such hearings for fear that they'll backfire and stoke the Republican base going into the midterms. But what happens in November after next Tuesday is really unclear. Um, I can tell you, Nicole, the party's liberal base and certain members like California 
Congresswoman Maxine Waters may still demand it. And a lot is truly going to depend on the Mueller investigation. Right. Well, uh, the clock is ticking. And um, as I said at the start, the presidential cycle officially starts after November 6th. But it seems like it's already underway. You know, I agree, Nicole. Democrats already have a full slate of potential candidates. And the big question is, will a Republican challenge uh, President Trump in the primaries? Well, who's at the top of the Democrats list? Well, uh, Senators Cory Booker and Kamala Harris both have been to first voting state Iowa and they use their high profile as members of the Senate Judiciary Committee in the Kavanaugh proceedings to further position themselves in the public's eye. And we have Senator Elizabeth Warren, who recently released her heritage DNA, who has been rumored to run for some time now. And all three are from the party's progressive wing, of course, uh, was, was led by Bernie Sanders as that initial torchbearer. And then there's former Vice President Joe Biden, who, if he decides to run, would be a contender from the establishment wing. And, Nicole, if you turn to the business world, you have Trump nemesis and lawyer Michael Avenatti, entrepreneurial Tom Steyer, and former Starbucks CEO Howard Howard Schultz have all been mentioned. Not to, uh, um, uh, There were many articles in the Post this weekend about former Mayor Bloomberg. So the 2020 Iowa caucus will likely be held on February 3rd, which means we are just 20 months away. All right, Uh, right around the corner. Well, our last poll for today, if you missed one of the earlier ones, this this is your chance. Uh, So the Trump administration shows no signs of moderating its displeasure toward U.S. companies that offshore production or services. How has that influenced your company's plans regarding offshoring? Are you increasing uh, investment in uh, in your offshoring or perhaps decreasing investment? Um, I think we see that uh, companies that are really at the forefront of the outsourcing transformation are creating new outsourcing models and partnership approaches. And these collaborations really are highlighting innovativeness and flexibility. And they're also supporting increased goal and risk shares between service providers and between the businesses themselves. So, Mary Moore, we we really see an overall shift in the way that um, outsourcing is being conducted today as opposed to maybe the way it's been done uh, in the past be interesting here to uh, see what our participants think today. Absolutely. That's just an ongoing topic of conversation. It is. These things have changed a lot over the last 40 years, and um, uh, we we certainly see a lot of different functions that are uh, being outsourced today and and, um, uh, a difference in the way of thinking about international outsourcing versus uh, onshoring, and um, will the administration's stance make companies reconsider this? There's a lot at play here. A lot at play, Nicole. It will be interesting to see. 
So as we look at these results, I think uh, overwhelmingly it seems that um, for outsourcing, there has not been a change uh, in in their focus here um, or that, that it is not applicable uh, as far as its um, influence on a company's plans going forward on offshoring. Very good, very interesting. Well, thanks so much for your time today. And uh, Mary Moore, thank you for your guidance and your insights. As always, you have given us much to think about. Um, and to our participants today, please be sure to join us for our post-midterm webcast on December 10th. And we will look forward to seeing you at our, our next event. Thank you. Thank, thank you, Mary you. Moore. Thanks, Nicole.